0: there, Thoughtvolutionists, and welcome back. I'm your host, Stéphane Dubier, and I hope you have been able to have the perfect morning, afternoon, or evening, depending on when I'm reaching you with this episode. I'm glad you've decided to take an hour out of your day to listen to Thoughtvolution, the podcast where the thoughts of others meet evolving minds. Perhaps you've just finished breakfast, lunch, or dinner. In that case, I hope it was delicious. Maybe you are trying to be quote-unquote health-conscious, aiming for low-fat, low-carb, low-calorie options. Our relationship with food and with our own bodies can be a very distorted one, especially with the mixed messages society and social media are sending. And isn't that a shame in itself? The fact that we allow for others to practically dictate what ends up on our plate? Sadly, my guest's relationship with food controlled more than half of her life. Scarlett is 47 years old now, and for 25 out of those 47 years, she battled with binge-purge anorexia. Yes, Scarlett became addicted to eating and purging. Wade seems to have played an important role her entire life. Scarlett's struggle with bulimia became so bad that her teeth were completely destroyed, and she eventually hid a life-or-death rock bottom that forced her to reassess and to take stock of her own life. You may not think about it like that, but food addictions and eating disorders are just like any other addiction, incredibly hard to recover from, with many sufferers facing relapse after relapse after relapse. According to the STRIPED study carried out by the Academy of Eating Disorders, 9% of the U.S. population, that is 28.8 million Americans, will develop an eating disorder in their lifetime. And 10,200 people die as a direct result of an eating disorder. That is one death every 52 minutes. I'm so very happy and glad that Scarlett is not one of those 10,200 people, but my heart goes out to all of those left behind because people suffering from an eating disorder often do so behind very closed doors, with loved ones helplessly watching, often not really knowing how to help. Scarlett made it through a fierce recovery process and managed to transform her entire life. She went from being bulimic becoming a mature lingerie model, focusing a lot of her time and energy now on helping break down the stigma and de-shame people suffering from an eating disorder, to spark open conversations about what eating disorders are, what it feels like for those living with this awful disease, and how we as a society can help sufferers and even prevent eating disorders proactively. I would like to make one thing very clear. Each eating disorder journey is different, and what worked for Scarlet may not work for everyone. In any case, I cannot wait for you to be inspired by the wonderful Scarlet. Trigger warning. This episode contains conversations about anorexia, bulimia, binging and perching, eating disorders, mental illness, self-harm, and body image issues. If any of these subjects are a trigger to you, Please prioritize your mental health and skip this episode. Hello and thank you for being here with me today on this slightly rainy Saturday in South Carolina. You are in England, how are things for you over there today, and will King Charles ever be able to fill his mom's shoes in your opinion? (laughs)
1: Hello, hello. It's lovely to be on with you today. Ironically, it is a slightly rainy day here too today. The sun's shining as well, though, so it's quite lovely. I'm not really sure. I'm not really very versed on the royals, so I can't really answer that one, I'm afraid.
0: To me, quite frankly, we are all royalty in our own ways. To the people who love us, we will always be the true heroes, in my opinion. Although my son just does not see that quite yet. <laughs> Now, what was life like for you growing up and who were your personal heroes and people you looked up to?
1: I totally agree. I think we all are royalty in our own ways, most definitely. (sighs) Growing up, gosh, growing up for me, there's nothing I could say that was, you know, particularly horrific that happened to me. There's no real big story I don't have any particularly good memories of of my childhood, unfortunately. I had an undiagnosed medical condition, so I was in pain a lot. And um, I also have ADHD and dyslexia, um, which was undiagnosed as well. So I had those two things going on for me and I learned, well, not learned, but I think from a very young age, I potentially was quite difficult to deal with, um, which sounds mean, no child should be. Dealt with, but I think that I was fed from a young age in order to keep me quiet. So growing up, I learned from you know from a very early age that food was an answer, an answer to feelings, an answer to pain, an answer to anything that was really going on in my life and my body. And that's kind of all of the memories that I have are kind of centered around feeling uncomfortable, not really having any identity, sort of tarnished everything in my early years like literally everything I definitely didn't I would never be able to remember anybody that I looked up to or even related to because I didn't really have any identity of of my own I didn't even really feel like a little girl I knew I was a little girl but I didn't I didn't relate to myself as such I just didn't look like the other little girls, I had my hair cut very short. I felt unattractive and just unpleasant, really. Awkward. Those are my, my early memories of being in pain, being uncomfortable and being overweight, which which is sad. And for a very long time, I would feel guilty for not having good childhood memories because it was often said, nothing bad happened to you, Scarlett. You know, nothing bad happens. But um, yeah, so those are my my early memories, unfortunately.
0: You mentioned that you left school at 13. Why was that?
1: Yeah, I was very young when I left school. Like I said, you know, growing up, I I'd, I'd started to eat in re- response to pretty much all of my feelings and pretty much everything. So I was very overweight as a little girl and my weight kind of increased as I got older. I just kind of got bigger as each year went by. I didn't really fit in. And I didn't feel like I fit, fitted in either, you know. And also with the stuff going on with my learning at, at school, you know, I was, my intelligence is fine. But when you've got dyslexia, it's, it is difficult to try and try and keep up and understand why you're not the same as everybody else. So not looking the same and not being able to get the thoughts and the things that I wanted to write down onto paper made it very, very difficult. But my weight was a definite issue. And what happened really, I mean, I was bullied by some older girls when I got to secondary school. And that kind of turned me, one day I got to a point where I thought, hang on a minute, I'm actually a big girl. And it kind of turned me, it turned it went the other way and turned me into a bit of a bully. And I got got into trouble myself. I rebelled a little bit. And in the end, I just ended up leaving school. It was kind of a mixture of that. But I did, I, I did want to add, you know, that so many things to do with school were so difficult when I was that overweight. Like, even getting my school uniform, I remember going to, to have the fitting and um, the woman in front of the whole shop full of people shouting up the stairs, oh, we've got a big one here, we're going to have to have a blazer made. I remember just standing there in this, in this shop feeling like... A, absolute balloon. It was absolutely horrendous. So there were so many things attached to school and my weight that made it difficult. The bullying and the fact that I rebelled and I became rather difficult and potentially a bully myself, which, you know, contributed to me leaving school young. But I wasn't bulimic at a super young age, but because I was binge eating, I would often eat so much that I was sick. And that also stopped me wanting to go to school. When I got to to 13, I just... I wouldn't, I just didn't want to go, you know. So all of those things going on together, unfortunately, led to me, to my education ending then, which is such a shame, you know. It shouldn't have happened that way. Um, And things were different back then, you know. People should have intervened, and I'm sure they would now, but it was a different system back then. So I was just kind of left, and I actually left home at that age as well. I was, I think, 14 when I left home, pretty much straight after I left school, really.
0: You had mentioned to me that you ended up isolated, self harming, and starving. I can imagine your body image issues and the consequential distorted relationship to food did not just start overnight. I mean, you mentioned binge eating starting pretty early on. When and how did your journey with your mental health struggles and later on with your eating disorder begin? What was that very first incident like? as you decided to not eat or to eat and then purge? And when did it become more than just an incident?
1: Yeah, I mean, so what happened was, I mean, after I, got, after I left school, I got older, I left home. It was a very long time, very, very long time ago. It was back in the days of acid house and things like that. It was a long time ago, and I unfortunately got mixed up in taking drugs and going to all these stupid parties and things, which... Luckily, it didn't last long in my life. But I started to be more aware of the fact that I'd not had boyfriends. I'd had one, but nothing, you know, and that boys weren't interested in me. And I really, I really, really wanted to change my body. I had like a social anxiety. I couldn't get close to fit me. I couldn't, I just wanted to change so much. I really, really did. I was still binge eating and still being sick after the binge eating, but not, not, not purging as such. And um, but what basically happened was I went, I decided to go onto a diet. So I started this diet and what I did was I would eat an apple, a yogurt and an apple a day. And this was my diet. And this is how I started this. I think by this time I was about 17 or so, maybe about eight, a bit older, actually about 18 and a half around that age. So I started to on this diet. I started to lose weight. Um, so I was effectively starving myself. I was developing anorexia. And as the days and weeks went by, the weight started to come off. I lost about 10 stone. I'm not sure what that is in pounds. I think it's about 140, 150 pounds. But as this diet progressed, I became more and more obsessed with it. I was so, so rigid. I would not deviate from it and my body started to change and the world's reaction to me started to change along with it so all of a sudden I was people would say to me oh my goodness you know look how amazing you're doing so well you look amazing underneath all that fat you you know oh gosh you've got lovely long slim legs and you're doing so well and wow, you look so different and who knew that you had, you know, a waist and I could literally go on forever. So the whole of society's reaction towards me changed and I felt better about me. Effectively, I was developing and had developed anorexia and my weight was plummeting. I mean, ten, to 10 is a lot of weight to lose, but yeah, so I wasn't letting go of that. You know, I, I I changed, like suddenly men were taking an interest in me. I remember being wolf whistled out in the street, which is, you know, not a great thing. But to me at the time, it was amazing. All of a sudden, I was a young woman. I, I had an identity, you know, I felt attractive. The world was effectively congratulating me for becoming an anorexic And I wasn't letting go of that. So I was carrying on with this, and physiologically, I was starving. I mean, the human body is designed, you know, that when we starve, like back in the times of cavemen, et cetera, we had feast and famine, right? So physiologically if you starve yourself, you're going to overeat. It's kind of like when we don't eat all day and we're just like, oh, I'm really hungry, and then you end up eating that little bit too much. I think we all do it when we don't eat for a long period of time. So I was potentially starving myself to death at that point. I was severely anorexic. Um, And one day, I remember it vividly, one day I was just panning, I was going to have a piece of bread I was starving. I was literally starving. And I remember it. I remember opening the bread, eating one slice, covering it butter, and then eating another one and another one and another one. And literally, this frenzied eating episode, I ate the entire loaf of bread, the entire pack of butter. Um, I remember just grabbing other random things and just eating them in this kind of frenzied, uncontrolled way. And it was shocking. I remember thinking, you know, what what am I doing? What is happening to me? When I stopped, uh, you know, I was in this, like, what have I, why did I just do that? I don't know what it must have looked like. I was literally just cramming food into my mouth. Obviously, I know now that that's starvation. My body was, was dying, in effect. I was so hungry. But I remember the absolute horror of the feeling. Obviously, I was physically uncomfortable. I was stuffed full of food. I'm looking down at my hands, I'm like covered in butter. It was like, what have I done? I could literally feel, you know, like the weight reforming on my body in that moment. I was absolutely horrified, horrified, terrified that I was going to be back in the hell of being that overweight person again, straight into the bathroom. I mean, I had, like I said before, with the binge eating, I would just kind of be sick from overeating, but this time... This was different. This time I was getting that food out of my body and I never had a problem with being sick. I never had to put my fingers down my throat or anything like that. To me, it was quite an easy thing to do. And that day I was just sick over and over and over. I was forced myself, so like drinking water, throwing up, drinking water, throwing up. It just went on for a good two hours until I was absolutely satisfied that there was no food left in my body. It's kind of weird when I remember back to it. So I don't even know how I knew what to do. And this is a long time ago. There wasn't um, internet then. There wasn't, you know, open talks about bulimia. It was just, I had to get that food out of my body. And I remember just drinking water and just being sick, 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 sick until I ended up lying on the bathroom floor, absolutely dizzy, absolutely exhausted, in pain. And when I say this, I need to... I need to make it very, very clear that, that at no point will I glorify or, you know, make out that bulimia is a good thing to do because it's not. It's a horrendous, horrific addiction. It's painful. It takes your life away and it's very, very horrible. But in that moment, I remember laying there thinking, wow, I've just taken all that away. I've just made another mistake, another binge, like I always do, and um, it's gone. You know, I've kind of pressed a reset. i've I've rewound time. And it was almost like this kind of light bulb went on in my head, and I was like, that was amazing. Brilliant. You know I, I don't have to worry about it now. so that that was the first time. I didn't directly then start constantly being sick. I tried to go back onto my diet, but hunger got the better of me. And then of course, I knew that I had this kind of magic magic formula now where I knew I could make myself sick. As time went by, I would think, right, fine. I won't eat all day. And then at night I'll just eat and be sick and it'll be fine. And to start with, I actually felt, and again, I would never ever glorify eating disorders. I'm not gonna keep saying it, but at the time I felt quite clever, almost, you know, sort of smart, like, you know, ha, I've got this secret, I've got this amazing thing that I can do, I can stay slim. I can eat whatever I want to eat, I can shop, I can... And that's exactly what I ended up doing. I ended up buying whatever food that I wanted to buy and eating it and purging. And as time went by, I started to eat more and more food. The the purging got more and more more and more intense. So this ended up going from sort of 18 to right up to sort of between... 30, I mean, I started to recover between the age of 35 and 38, but yeah, as the time went by, the amounts of food that I was eating increased, until it was an absolute. The um, the amount of food, honestly, it was it was it was huge, and the purging would go on for for hours and hours and end. But yeah, that that's basically how it started.
0: I know that for many of us, it's tough to even imagine all of that. There must have been people in your life who were witnessing the physical changes with some level of concern. As with any addiction, over time, sufferers become very good at lying, manipulating, and deflecting in order to stay in their addiction and to get the desired response. For drug addicts, that can be financial support they need in order to feed their addiction. With eating disorders, it is often the positive attention, the compliments, the remarks that one looks very thin, as you previously mentioned. Keeping in mind that we do not wish to judge or shame, did you resort to lying to the people around you to mask what you were really doing?
1: I mean, yeah, of course. I didn't have a lot of people around me at that time in my life. I was very, very isolated because, you know, I I pushed away all the friends that I had within the anorexic period of my life I wasn't interested in people at all I didn't really want to I was studying at the time because I was redoing things I'd obviously left school young and I was trying to try and have a career so I carried on with that I pretty much pushed all my friends away because the anorexia was was severe and then obviously when I started with the binging and purging it used to take up so much time and um, like the purging would the you would Well, I would eat for, like, an hour and then purge for an hour. And, like, the purging was so ritualistic, like you said, like, within any addiction. I mean, I would have to be sick a thousand times and I would have to count a thousand times. And then I would have to do that five times. So it made five thousand. And if I missed one, I'd have to go back to the star so you can imagine, and I was so rigid with it, so you can imagine how much time that took out of my life. And there was other, you know, rituals and stuff. And obviously I had to hide the amount of food that I was eating and the amount of time that I was purging. So there was only really, it wasn't my husband at the time, but the only person around me was was my husband, who was just started off as a friend then and then became my boyfriend. He was absolutely terrified. He, he you know, I would just lie, straight up lie at the start and just say, no, I just don't feel well, or just go away or just push him away and try and get him to leave. He was the only really person around me at the time. I'd isolated myself so effectively that I didn't have to, I didn't really have to hide from anyone. I was able to study and go and do that, but, and then just keep my binging and purging, you know, as as a secret. But um, yeah, I would lie to him at the start. It, you know, the relationship changed as the years went by, most definitely. I mean, I can talk about that later. I, I turned him into an enabler, effectively. But yeah, I would lie to him at the start, most definitely.
0: Obviously, our bodies have their limits. When did you realize you were in big, big trouble? You mentioned your teeth becoming completely destroyed. Can you tell us a bit more about that?
1: So, I mean, yeah, the the weight loss continued. And for the first five or six years, this, binging and purging is an addiction. You know, this is what people don't understand. It becomes addictive. You're messing with the chemicals in your brain, your dopamine, your serotonin, like the eating the food, clearing it all out. It's lighting up reward centers in your brain and it becomes an addiction And that alongside the fact that I still saw myself as being overweight and I was still losing weight, those things together were enough for me to ignore the initial health issues that I had. So for the first five or six years or so, weight was still dropping, the stomach aches, the body aches, things like that, I was able to ignore And, you know, right up to the end, I was able to ignore them because the addiction is so strong because you are messing with your brain chemistry and you do have a serious mental health disorder. So what you're seeing in the mirror is not what you actually are. So as much as I was in pain and things were going wrong in those first initial years, it wasn't as apparent, it wasn't enough to stop me. But I mean, after I'd say about seven years or so, things really did start going on for me. Teeth in particular are affected by by purging. And not all people with bulimia do actually make themselves sick, I must add. You know, there are other ways of purging, but for me, I never used laxatives or everything or anything like that. It was always making myself sick. So the enamel on my teeth did it was really, really effective. And what always stands out for me. When I look back, and it's even shocking for me to look back on, is I carried on purging through severe toothache. I don't know if you've ever had toothache, had toothache, but it's agony, right? And I, I would carry on like through needing root canals, actually losing teeth. I would carry on purging. The addiction was so so strong that the health issues and stuff just didn't. It just didn't. It wasn't enough to stop me. And when I look back, I think, how did I go through that pain and still carry on, carry on, you know? But yeah, I mean, after about seven years or so, things did really start to go wrong with my body. I would bleed when I was purging. So that actually became part of my ritual. So I would I would have to be sick a certain amount of times and then I would have to see clear water and then I would have to see blood. And I would only be satisfied when I saw blood. And if I wasn't dizzy, I wasn't satisfied. I studied nursing. So not that that meant anything in particular, but I thought I was super clever. So I was able to mess around with my electrolytes a little bit, you know, keep myself safe. So I thought by using, you know, electrolyte sachets and stuff to stop myself from what I thought dying. But yeah, I mean, I used to pass out a lot and After about seven or eight years, things really did, really did get hard physically, but it didn't stop me, no. And my weight kept on dropping, constantly kept dropping.
0: For many, their eating disorders go hand in hand with an exercise addiction to burn even more calories. Was that the case for you as well?
1: I mean, at the start, I did. I did used to go to the gym a lot. But like I said, I had, I have Ellis danlos syndrome alongside a few other health issues that I don't really I don't talk about them because I don't like them to be fully manifest in my life but I do have some quite quite bad health problems so it wasn't easy for me to exercise but yeah at the start I did definitely when I was young I definitely used to spend a lot of time burning calories by doing exercise but as time went by no my health didn't didn't allow that no
0: to boost their eating disorders even further, many sufferers turn to pro-ANA groups and forms on the internet, that's groups and forms where bulimia and anorexia are glorified. Is that something you did as well? And can you talk about the dangers of that?
1: For me, no, I I didn't, I didn't do that for a start when I'm, you know, I'm 47. So at the start, it, the internet wasn't really, wasn't really part of my life, but No, I did used to sit at the computer and binge and and then go to the loo and be sick and then come back. But I never, ever related to other people. I did not. I was just so isolated. I just wasn't interested in people at all. Not at all. I didn't even answer the telephone. I just completely and utterly isolated myself from the world. So no, for me, that's not not ever been part part of my, was never part of my eating disorder. But... Obviously, now I've worked with, you know, hundreds of clients myself and helping them to recover. And um, I have seen a lot of this kind of behaviours. And then, I mean, there is a lot now done online to stop this kind of thing, which is great. It is quite difficult now to form a group and maintain it because there are a lot of structures in place to protect people. But what I tend to find is that support groups that are set up are very, very negative and often a breeding ground for competition. I'm not a great, great believer in group therapy either, because again it breeds competition. So yeah, I I think nowadays it is quite difficult to maintain. I mean, yeah, it happens. It does, it does happen. I don't think that there should ever be really support groups even that are unmodified unmodified um, by professionals even because it just breeds competitiveness. P, you know, sufferers learn from each other. And it's not a positive place, not at all.
0: How many rounds of recovery and relapse would you say you had to go through before your recovery finally became a stable one? And who was there to help you throughout all of that?
1: So basically, throughout my eating disorder, unfortunately, and this, this is common, this is a common theme with a lot of people with eating disorders, what happens is you develop enabling structures within the eating disorder. And very often... They involve other people and sufferers, you know, I mean, I've had to forgive myself for everything that I did throughout my eating disorder. Um, I don't have any shame anymore. I don't I don't feel bad because I've forgiven myself. I had a mental mental illness and a severe addiction. But I, I. turned my husband inadvertently into enabler you know I I sort of emotionally blackmailed him and made him go and get the food and you know I would say to him if you don't do this I'm going to kill myself if you don't get the food if you don't help me if you don't you know because we had kids and pregnancy was a, a nightmare for me as you can imagine but so he was there he was always there alongside alongside me and unfortunately he he didn't want to hurt me or do anything wrong he just did what he thought was helping me at the time which is what enabling is about and that's a massive part of part of recovery so he was alongside me the whole time and from the outside looking in somebody could say hey hang on he's not he's not helping her you know what's going on there why is he but it's not it's not his fault and this happens with a lot of people I just was in the grips of a mental health disorder and an, adi- an addiction, so I would I would use him to to enable me. But as far as recovery is is concerned, I literally tried I tried everything. I think I got to I didn't want to recover at the start. I wasn't remotely interested in recover recovering. I just wanted to be thin. It was only when I had my children and things like that that I did actually kind of want to recover. But my heart was never truly in it, to be honest, not until the end. But I tried everything. I tried everything that was available under the healthcare system in the UK. I was admitted as a day patient, in the end as an inpatient. I paid thousands of pounds for different treatments. I didn't, I couldn't say that they relapsed because none of them ever ever worked for me. None of them ever worked. And the only person who ever really was there, who ever really knew anything, was was my husband. I didn't have any other family, so yeah. But nothing nothing worked for me.
0: You eventually did hit your rock bottom. I mean, you went from twenty stone—that's two hundred and eighty pounds—to under five stone that is under 70 pounds, when and how did you hit your rock bottom that made you finally realize that you needed to make a complete recovery or you were going to die?
1: So, I mean, I did try, like I said, I did try everything. And during my pregnancies... I have seven children. <laughs> Birth control doesn't work well when you are bulimic, unfortunately. Um, I'm glad I've got them now. I love them all. And um, Throughout my pregnancies, I uh, like I said, I have no shame. I've forgiven myself for everything that I've done. I was able to be more gentle with myself um, because I had another little person inside me to look after. So I was able to gain weight and I was able to get a little bit more clarity but I would go straight back. After each baby, I would go straight back into my bulimia or binge pergeneraia as it's as it's termed. So recovery was never something that I achieved you know by by accessing help or anything. What actually happened was I was admitted, and my weight was super, super low, and I was just getting more and more ill. I was throwing up blood literally every day. I was refusing medical treatment, I wouldn't go to the doctors, I'd been admitted, I'd left, I'd escaped, I wasn't going back and I was sort of threatened at that point with being sectioned and possibly being away from my children and my husband and kind of losing the things that I loved and I remember looking into my oldest daughter's eyes and just thinking as much as I don't want to be here, I don't want to be in this life anymore, I don't want to live in this hell, I can't get out of this hell and I don't want to live it anymore. I don't want to leave my children and I don't want to leave my husband. And I was so, so, so thin at that point. Like my skin, you could literally, my bones were, I was getting sores when my bones were kind of rubbing onto my skin. Blood was just kind of like dripping inadvertently out of my mouth. You know, I was so, so thin. And I remember just looking in the mirror one day with just literally blood just coming out of my mouth, and potentially i should have I should have called an ambulance, but I know that I knew what would happen. I knew they would have sectioned me, and that would have been it. I would have lost everything and I had this kind of i don't really know I don't really know what the words are for it. it was i want to find the words. it was like this it was this life and death thing it was like i over somehow stop this now, or I'm going to the, the dying bit didn't really scare me. That that was kind of, I wanted that. I was like, I want to die, but I'm going to lose my children. I'm going to leave them without a mother. And I'm going to put them through the trauma of that. And I I couldn't do that. Um, and I remember that day. I remember thinking, if I purge one more time with this blood like this, I'm, I'm potentially going to die. I was losing consciousness a lot at that point. My heart wasn't beating properly. And I had this kind of almost like a breakdown i remember lying on the floor and just crying for hours and hours and hours and it was like at that point i knew that i had to be honest with myself and stop lying to myself i had to i had to recover and i had to look at what i was doing and just be honest with myself and that's when i changed it was literally do or die and, um, and the thought of leaving my children without a mother was something that I just couldn't do. If I didn't have those children, I probably wouldn't be here now. That would have been it. I would have just carried on and I would have died. And um, I think I think you quoted the statistic yourself. I think somebody dies every fifty minutes across the world from from an disorder. They do have the most difficult treatment, mortality rates and the most difficult, the highest mortality rates, and they are the most difficult mental health issue to deal with across the board. But yeah, that's when I had to make decisions and that's when I started to recover. And obviously I had relapses after that, but that's when I, that's when it started.
0: If we have somebody listening and still being very much consumed by their own eating disorder, perhaps relapsing after what they believed to finally be their salvation, their complete recovery, what would be your words of advice and encouragement to them? And what do you think you would have needed to hear back then?
1: Basically, after I realized that it was do or die, really, and that I needed to to start looking at my recovery... I had to be very, very honest with myself. I'd been through so many different treatment programmes, writing food down, having to go along to professionals and confess what I ate and when. And, you know, I'm very aware that this still happens. Like, when did you binge? What did you eat? Et cetera, et cetera. Which had never helped me. All it had ever done is made me worse. So I knew that. And I knew that that didn't work. So what I did was, after crying for a few days and going through some awful feelings, not being able to binge because of the bleeding um, and purge, I had to start thinking some, some trees. And none of it involved writing stuff down or making food plans or anything like that, which is kind of how my method works now. What I had to do was be brutally honest. And I remember... This kind of moment of truth where I half screamed at my husband, you have to stop listening to me because you're talking to my eating disorder. Now, anybody listening who has an eating disorder will know that there is something called the eating disordered voice. And it kind of arrives in your life from the moment that you become disordered in any way with food it's this negative voice that tells you constantly that you're ugly that you're fat that you shouldn't eat that that there's too many calories there's you won't do this and you won't be able to do that and that you mustn't do this and you mustn't do that and as I started to recover I kind of realized that that voice wasn't actually me and I take a very different approach to a lot of professionals they say you know, oh, the eating disorder person has a certain personality. Well, yeah, that is kind of true. There are elements of elements of me that you could say are extreme and they work in my favour now. But I don't believe that you're born with this gene that gives you an eating disorder at all. I do not believe that. That eating disorder voice was part of my mental health problem and part of my addiction. And the realisation that I had at the start of recovery was that I needed to treat, that voice as not my voice, as my eating disorder's voice. And I remember, like I was just saying, kind of half screaming at my husband, you need to stop listening to me. And he's like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, if you love me, you've got to stop listening to me. Don't buy me food. Don't cover up for me. Don't take the children out. Leave them there because I wouldn't do it in front of them. Don't buy me anything, you know, and it was this kind of screamy you know, and he's standing there looking short, like, okay, okay. And I, I, I said to him, if you if you don't do that, I will have to leave. And obviously, he, you know, we were both breaking down together. And he was like, oh, no, don't leave. You know, he didn't know what he was doing wrong. He didn't understand. But he obviously listened to me because he didn't have a mental health condition. So that made a massive difference, him understanding that actually... That part of me wasn't me, it was my eating disorder and I kind of learned that then as well and I started to separate myself from it. That's my eating disorder and that is me and that's kind of how how recovery started. And yeah, I did have relapses which were terrifying because I would bleed profusely again and there were times where I went back into it for a couple of months and then I would come out again and... And I did not write the method that I use now overnight, you know, it's been almost a decade. But as my recovery went on, you know, the, the main crux of it was to realise that I was not my eating disorder. My eating disorder is a mental health condition, it's an addiction and to treat it as such. So your question was, you know, how would I, you know, how would I say to someone or help somebody who, who'd relapsed? I I would keep on maintaining to them that you know this this is not you this is your eating disorder and you have to change yourself at core in order to recover which is a massive part of the work I do it's it's core transitional recovery so it's about destructuring it's it's the work I do is it's literally how I recovered and how I recovered back then was in an emergency situation, I had to work in the now. I'd spent years going for therapy and and talking about the past, et cetera, et cetera, and I had to destructure in the now. So, yeah, I mean, the advice that I would give to someone is, yeah, you're going to have relapses etc but I would advise them to find to find help you need people to be qualified obviously they need to they need to be professional and they need to be qualified but also I'm a strong believer in lived experience I would advise them to try and find a therapist or a coach or somebody who has actually been there themselves because It's like I always say, you can't learn to smile out of a book. You know, there's certain things that you have to have experienced to be able to understand on on a certain level. So if that answers the question, (laughs) that's that's the advice I would give. You know, you're going to relapse, but just keep on remembering that that is not you. It's an illness. It's a disorder. It is not an intrinsic part of who you are. It's not permanent. You're not flawed it can go and it will go
0: you mentioned forgiving yourself and clearly forgiving yourself and learning to be kind to yourself after everything your body and psyche were put through not only by the eating disorder but also by being isolated and not knowing where you belong was crucial for your healing journey what did it take for you to get there
1: Wow, forgiving myself um I am a very, very strong believer that you cannot learn self love. I don't believe in in self love books. I this is just my personal opinion. I don't believe that you can pick up a book and learn how to love yourself. I don't believe that you can read a thousand quotes and suddenly look in the mirror and say, "Hey, I love my body," or "Hey, girl, you're go, you're just this, you're that." I don't believe that myself. I think that self love and self forgiveness and all of the things that go along with that body image changes etc come as a process and that process is not just with eating disorders right it could be with anything that you're recovering from that involves involves self hate or self harm it's something that you need to learn it's a journey that you go on and it looks so different for so many people for me as recovery progressed as time went by, I again separated myself, I, I destructured my eating disorder at the core, I dismantled and again that's a whole nother topic, it's very deep, the work that I do and I, it, it does come from what I did back then. But the point of forgiving myself and learning to love myself happened quite far into recovery. So as much as the binging and purging had stopped even after four or five years or so, that's when I really started to forgive myself. And there's massive, massive parts of my life that I can't remember. I had so much guilt and so much regret and so much shame to deal with. Like even, you know, four years or so after having not binged and purged, I was absolutely horrified and ashamed and I would have been mortified if even one person had heard my story. And now quite obviously I am just this massive advocate for de-shaming, bulimia and binge purge behaviours. I will talk so rawly about it and so honestly because I will, I know it's a massive block to people accessing treatment because it's just so shameful and it's so embarrassing um but the whole thing about about forgiving yourself and loving yourself it's a slow process you know and it took it took me a long time and eventually I I started to look back and say you know that wasn't me that was my mental health condition that was what I was going through at the time. And I let my children down. Yeah, I I got up in the night for them. I fed them. I never left them on their own. I never did anything crazy, but I didn't go to the park. Their daddy took them to the park because I was at home binging and purging. I didn't go to assemblies because I didn't want to speak to anybody. I didn't turn up and show up for things for them. And I've had to forgive myself for that. And it's been hard. It's a very, very slow, slow process. And it goes along with with self-love, you know, it's, it's something that comes slowly as you realise what you went through and what you went through wasn't actually you, it was something that you suffered from. And the nature of eating disorders, they're so fluid, they're fluid, they change over time. Like the reason that I started binging and purging wasn't the same as the years went by, you know, like 20 years later, when I when I finally recovered, it had become a system of self-harm because I was so disgusted with myself. I was just doing it to hurt myself by the end of it. So I had to kind of look back over the whole entire process and realise how ill I'd been and kind of understand that those things were not things that I would have done by choice. They were things that I did because I had a mental health condition And yeah, it's it's been a slow process, but a very, very powerful process. And it's so different for everybody. Like in my own clients, some people's recovery and self-love and forgiveness journey is so peaceful and so serene and so beautiful that I feel so honoured to witness it. Whereas mine, mine is loud and fierce and noisy. I mean, I went on even like three years ago or so, I did, I started a profile on social media and I was quite fierce in the start I was like you know what you can be ill and you can have flaws and you can still look good in lingerie and I'm gonna do this and I'm gonna post that and I'm kind of fierce in my in my self-love and I did that and it took off it went crazy and um I did get a lot I got a lot of love and a lot of support and you know I did get very popular but at the same time I got a lot of trolling and a lot of jealousy and I'm glad for that because it helped me along even at the, you know, the actual actual latter parts of my recovery. I am so fully recovered now, but it made me so strong just to be criticised, to be able to be criticised in a public forum, like, you know, picking up a post that, that some of the posts were, were getting viewed by like quarter of a million people and you'd get criticised and I'd be like, nobody can touch me anymore. You know, I've got to a point in my journey now with self-forgiveness and self-love I mean this is like six or so years into recovery that I'm literally untouchable you know it doesn't matter what anybody says about what I look like and, and it's not about my looks I could I could literally grow an extra leg or something and I would still feel the same about myself I love me and that's that and it doesn't matter what anybody says and I am absolutely fierce with it I'm yeah, I keep saying the word fierce because I am. But everybody is different, you know. For some people, it's gentle and it's soft and it's... But self-love and self-forgiveness, they're not something you can learn. They're part of a process. They're part of an understanding of yourself, forgiving and really separating yourself from your mental health issue and being able to look at it as such and I hope that makes sense. <laughs> but that's how it is for me. And and again, it's different for everyone. And I am still very shouty and very, very, very in my body image now and the way I feel about myself. Yes, I, of course, am not, you know, untouchable. I still get upset by things that anybody else does. But there is nobody on this planet that can tell me what I look like or because I it doesn't bother me the only opinion now that bothers me is my own and that may sound egoic or boastful or but it isn't it's because I love myself so fiercely inside and out that only I can decide and which is the complete opposite to that little girl that I was at the start and the teenager and the woman and the mother that I was the person I am now it's a, it's amazing. It is, but it's a journey, and I'm, I'm, I'm waffling a bit. But the forgiveness, the self love, the journey. You're not just going to recover. You're not going to read a book full of quotes and go, oh my goodness, I just love myself so much. It's a slow process, and it's an individual and unique process, and it is a beautiful process, and one that I luckily now get to facilitate and, and watch in my clients. I feel so blessed to be able to watch it in other people, after being you know, I'm going for it myself. I do. I've got a massive smile. You can hear my smile in my voice because I do feel so very blessed to see that journey in others. It is a beautiful thing.
0: I absolutely love what you said. You are untouchable because you love yourself. And self-love and self-forgiveness are, at its core, something that comes from truly understanding yourself. So... Thank you for those words, because I think that that will be very inspiring for a lot of people out there. Now, you mentioned earlier that you kind of turned your husband into an enabler. What about helpless parents, friends, partners watching their loved ones literally waste away to almost nothing? Is there anything they can do? Is there anything you can tell them that may help them support their eating disorder sufferer in a more constructive and helpful way without making them an enabler?
1: I think it is extremely difficult for people watching, witnessing people who are going through eating disorders. Like I said before, and I I found this with myself and with a lot of the clients that I work with, Um, They do employ they. It doesn't sound right. People, clients clients do employ um, their loved ones as enablers through coercion, through emotional blackmail. And unwillingly, you know, people do end up supporting them in their eating disorder. And it's not because they don't love them or they're hurting them. It's because they love them and they don't know what else to do. In the same way as my poor husband didn't know what else to do, he he just loved me. And when I was begging him, like, I will hurt myself if you don't do this and I will choke and I will die. He would do whatever it took to stop me from suffering. And this is a problem with family members, with people close to sufferers. Not always. You know, I do find a lot in practice that sometimes, you know, loved ones and relatives can be quite angry and and. You know, why don't you just eat? Why would you do this to me? You know, why are you so disgusting? Why do you vomit into plastic bags or why do you do this hideous thing? And they're they're disgusted and they're absolutely confused and 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 they don't understand why, you know, somebody would behave in such a way. I would like I mean, ideally, I could I could somehow reach all these people and ask them to educate themselves you know, about the, the brain chemistry involved in the addictions with binge purge disorders, unfortunately, I can't. But the, the the main crux of it is to not approach with food. You know, so many people, I see this all the time in practice, you know, when people aren't angry and they do want to help, they, they will say, well, you know, let me help you eat, let me help, you know, help you to eat you know, or eat with you, or we can buy food together. What people have to realise is when somebody has an eating disorder, that voice that I talked about earlier, that's going to be the initial point of contact. Their loved one is there, but they have a mental health disorder. They're they're in the grips of an addiction, and that could be serving so many different purposes for the sufferer. It could be still about maintaining weight. It could be about self-harm. There's so many different reasons but the voice is who the first point of contact for that relative and loved one, that's the first thing that is going to emerge. So when they address their loved one, hey, I want to help you, I care about you, the loved one isn't going to react In the way that they expect, because the eating disorder voice is going to literally say, I hear you, they're onto you, they're going to make you fat, they're going to make you eat, they're going to, does that make sense? You know, they're going to stop you, they're going to do something so that we can't continue, which sounds insane, but anybody listening with an eating disorder will totally relate, it's... And for the loved ones and the people who want to help the sufferers, they need to know that that voice is is who they're going to be negotiating with first. And personally, as a therapist and as a recovery coach, and I do do things differently than than other coaches and other therapists, I kind of like to have a little conversation with that voice if I can. Almost be a bit clever with it and just kind of ask it, you know, are you, what do you want to do today? Is there anything that you want to do? How do you feel? Anything that doesn't involve food? Because the minute you mention food, the trigger switch goes and you've lost it straight away you know, coming in all guns blazing. Let me just eat with you. Let's, what will you eat? What can we do? We need to take you here and do this, that, and the other is going to completely trigger that voice into not talking back to them. That voice is going to shout back at them and it's going to shout loud. So my advice would be just to try and converse and try and keep them talking and keep them in a place where they can start to have conversations about their feelings. Because... The more the sufferer talks about their feelings, they kind of slip around the side of that voice a little bit because they kind of talk from their own self, from their own soul, from behind that voice, if that makes sense. That was quite a long a long response, but it's just remembering that that voice is going to be the first thing that comes at you when you try and speak to the sufferer of any type of eating disorder, of any addiction But obviously we're on the topic of eating disorders, but that is what's going to happen. That voice is going to click in, it's going to kick back and it's going to come at you. And all the sufferers going to hear is they're onto you, you
0: know? I would like to say that I love how much passion you have for helping others and how that happiness you fought so hard to find shines through you now. It is beautiful to see how at home you finally are in yourself So, thank you for sharing that with us. Now, something that has since become your true calling is that you want to help others suffering from eating disorders. Before we talk about that, I would like to know how your life and your relationship to yourself, your body, and, of course, food, has changed since your recovery.
1: Thank you so much for your for your kind words. And I am quite passionate about being very honest. I don't have any shame. I said before, none whatsoever about my eating disorder. Absolutely not. I used to have so much shame. Um I never smiled and I had veneers done. It was very it was very expensive, but I had to have veneers done on my teeth and that changed my life. And I remember when they first did them. Um, it was a painful process with my enamel. My teeth were so, so worn down and they have to drill off more. It's not something I would recommend anybody have done unless they've damaged their teeth. But I remember at the final stage, and I'm terrified of the dentist, so it was like hours and hours in the dentist dental chair. And I remember the final stage and, and the dentist sitting me up and giving me the mirror. And I smiled And it was like the tears literally just fell down my face I could cry now I don't think I've stopped smiling since I think some people actually think I'm mental because all it means was not the right word crazy because all I do is smile 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 and um you know when I did my um modeling I had some cruel comments I think mainly fueled by jealousy ah you've got fake teeth they're not fake teeth they're my teeth they're fixed teeth but that's one of the things with my body you know like I did that I put myself through those hours and hours of pain and and mental and and dental and mental torture because I'm terrified of it but when I smile now you know obviously my teeth are fixed and that that makes me feel good about my body but my smile comes from from my heart and from my soul because I always have this kind of joyous feeling it's kind of like I don't need a gratitude journal because I just always feel I sound absolutely mad at this point, but life—my life—is the same as everybody else's, right? You know, things go wrong. Sometimes my life's super hard, and I have got a health problem that is really difficult at times. But I always have this feeling of joy in me because of what I overcame and and how I felt then to how I feel now. So I have I have so much joy and so much happiness, and I smile so much. Um, my body, I have extensive scarring on the bottom of my legs. Um, and the whole time through my modelling, I could never, ever show that part of my legs. But I still love them. I don't show them. I can't I can't get my legs out in, in the summer because I'm not truly comfortable with sharing them because they're my scars. But I'm not ashamed of them in the fact of, oh, they're hideous, they're this, they're that. They're mine. And I would prefer to keep them covered. So it's a different... A different relationship. It's not that I'm, oh, I'm ashamed of them. They're mine. They're there for a reason. They have a story and they're mine. So I keep them covered. But I love my body. I look after it as much as I can with my health problem. I absolutely love it. And I love myself and food, yeah. So my food, my relationship with food now is perfectly normal. I'm a clinically I'm a celiac, so I don't eat gluten. But that's because I had to, you know, I had a proper test done. They took a bit of my um intestine out and did a biopsy, and I am um, I have got celiacs. But um my relationship with food is normal. Sometimes they eat too much chocolate, you know, sometimes they don't eat enough. Because I've been running around all day, sometimes I eat, you know, a little bit too much. But I taste my food and I eat to my appetite, which is something I never thought I would do. Like I actually check in with my body. It's like, am I hungry? Yeah. Do I like the taste of this? Yeah. So I have a really healthy relationship with food now. And my relationship with my body and myself is good. I really, really do love myself and I love the work that I'm doing now as well. But I do have this constant feeling of joy and it is a very lovely thing. I don't know if other people have that who overcome things in their life. I'm sure they do, but it is a nice place to be and it is a nice way to feel. And I feel very blessed and very lucky that I was able to to overcome what it is and be where I am now.
0: As mentioned before, you now work as a therapist and eating disorders recovery coach. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? And also, if people are interested in your work and would like to learn more, what can they do?
1: So initially, after my recovery, really sort of, I stopped binging and purging. I did traditional training. I had done prior to that traditional BACP type therapist, psychotherapy, counseling training training. And then I went on to do something which is my absolute passion, um, Emotional Freedom Technique, EFT, which is my absolute love. And I worked with people one-to-one for a very long time doing that. And after I got better, it's a really, really powerful modality of healing and dealing with traumas and emotional issues so I did that and initially I would use my own recovery program alongside the EFT and I also obviously I would use traditional counseling and psychotherapy methods as well I also trained in something called matrix Reimprinting, which I used as well and right up until COVID I was working with clients doing this. And then obviously I did the modeling for a little while when COVID took over. But since then, I've kind of relaunched myself and I'm now working solely with bulimics and I'm quite specific. I only work now with people with bulimia, binge purge type disorders or people with obsessive ritualistic behaviors around shape, weight on food. And I use my 10 modular method which is the core transitional recovery program um, or recovery method? It's very effective, and it's like I said, I did devise it from my own recovery. And yeah, I will. I will um, give you the link to my website. And what I tend to do is I do like a discovery call. So I'll get on a call with somebody. I don't outsource. Clients with bulimia or binge purge conditions. It's only me that they work with, and I get on a call initially, and it's you know it's meant to be half an hour, but it's it's normally a lot longer than that. And I always have a really good look and see if we're the right fit to work together because I only, like I say, I only work with a specific group of people because when I do work with somebody, I need to know that I'm going to help them to find complete recovery. I don't agree with long drawn out processes where people are constantly paying to talk about the past and and kind of stuck in the moment whilst not progressing. So with me, there needs to be um, quite a deep discussion and analytical phase where we kind of work out if, if recovery is something that they're ready for and that they're, in the right place to start and if all of those things fit then yeah you know then then that's great they can come on the program and we will we will work out their a personalized recovery program for them so I will um give you the link to my book a call page I think I'm working about a month in advance at the moment but yeah so that's that's how I work it's not it's not a fit for everybody, but like I say, if somebody is going to come into my program, they're going to leave recovered. So I need to know that they are the right fit for me and that I'm the right fit for them. That's very important to me. Um, it's not just a hey, come and you know pay, pay your weekly fees and talk about on leave and and not change. That's not how it works with me. Not at all. So, yeah, so I use, you know, all of the different modalities I train in. But essentially, my recovery method is how I recovered after those 25 years and after trying literally every single thing that there is out there and doing it my way that worked to me. And, and I found in practice that works for other people. Um, and, yeah, and I will give you the link to my website, most definitely.
0: Many people think that eating disorders only affect women, but that is actually incorrect and often makes us forget about male sufferers or even ostracize them. Especially among gay men, eating disorders are a huge problem. Can you tell us more about the struggles of male sufferers and how their journeys may differ?
1: I'm so glad that you brought that up because I've been waiting to interject with my <laughs> with with this with this element of eating disorders research and treatment I just find it terrible the way that men are excluded I think in my experience it's a 50 50 split now I don't see that there's a lot of difference with sufferers. It is a 50-50 split. There are just as many men as there are women who have eating disorders, from binge eating disorder to, to bulimia to anorexia. But for some reason, we still seem to be stuck in this belief that eating disorders are a female issue, You can hear the annoyance in my voice at this point. I am an absolute champion for male awareness. There's not enough research. The research done into eating disorders is not adequate anyway, but there is barely anything researched about about the condition for men. And I have worked with quite a few male clients. I'm thinking of one who's got... There's a testimony on my website. He's an athlete. His name's withheld, but... He suffered for a very long time, and I have permission, obviously I'm not going to name, but I do have permission to talk, uh, you know, about his condition. He dealt with a massive level of shame, and I find this in all of the My Male clients. There's enough shame for women to be able to come and and, you know... I'm not going to use the word confess, but that's kind of how it feels, how it felt to me, like I had to confess to a therapist what I was doing. But it's hard enough for women to come along and say, you know, I binge and purge or, you know, I have these behaviours. But for men, when these, these disorders are seen as feminine issues and, and are very often and very cruelly by medical professionals, not all, but some, it's this, oh, she wanted to lose weight because she wasn't happy with her big or size. When you apply that to a man, you know, a gay man, a straight man, any man, it completely and utterly takes away the masculinity, their manliness, however they want to see or name or describe that element of their themselves of a man. It kind of takes away from that because... They're seen as female and feminine issues and the shame factor for that is through the roof. It's so much more difficult for men and when I've had clients to work with, I find that chipping away to even get to the start of treatment, to even get through the shame of admitting that Because they're so brainwashed into believing that this is a woman's... I have a woman's disorder. I've actually heard someone... I have a woman's illness. I have a woman's disorder. And it's like, oh, my goodness. Eating disorders do not discern. They're not... They don't care. (laughs) It makes no difference what, what sex you are, gender, however you identify, whoever you are. It makes no difference. And things are starting to slowly change. There's been a few things in the press recently. But for me... And for a lot of other people who work in eating disorder recovery, it makes us boil because there just isn't enough said and there isn't enough done. And at the moment, I'm trying to get as many men as I can possible to open up and talk. But that, again, is difficult. It's demasculine. I can never say that word. Demasculine. I'm not even going to try. It, it stops men feeling like men. In whatever way they identify as a man, it kind of takes away from that. And it makes me really, really sad. Eating disorders do not discern.
0: I wonder what your thoughts are on us as a society and especially social media creating a breeding ground for eating disorders and what we can all do to no longer nurture that irrational desire to have the quote-unquote perfect body instead of celebrating and loving the body we already have. What message would you like to send out to the world?
1: To me, it's a very strong and resounding message. And I strongly believe that what happens to us as children, so our literally 0-7 experience, is so, so very important in the core beliefs that we develop as human beings. Yes, there are, you know, media factors, there are external factors um, that affect people. But if you look at a section of teenagers that are all the same age, the same height, the same weight, some of them will develop eating issues when looking at social media and etc., and some of them won't. And I strongly believe that a lot of that is to do with how they were treated and how their self-esteem and their self-beliefs and their core beliefs formed when they were children. I know that that's a difficult thing to do because very often, you know, these things don't even come around until people are grown up. But the ideal thing would be for schools, parents, which is not always, you know, possible, but for schools and educational systems to really work with young people from kind of preschool, you know, when they start super young on body realisation, body image, not necessarily I'm a boy, I'm a girl or anything like that, just learning how to accept themselves and really understand who they are as little people. I think that is what is needed. You know, I think you can talk all day about photoshopping and body filtering and all this kind of stuff. I think by that time and by that point, it's kind of too late because like I just said, you know, not everybody is affected Some people are and some people aren't. And I strongly believe that that's down to their childhood. So if we could really go in strong into the education systems across the world from children, you know, from three upwards and really help them to work on their self-beliefs and getting to know themselves and getting to know their souls and, and that voice inside them that is them and falling in love with that from a young age, I think that that will help strengthen them in later life to be able to deal with the differences in body shapes and sizes and what's acceptable and what is and what isn't, etc. My children are extremely resilient and they're all different shapes and sizes. One of mine in particular is extremely body confident and he isn't necessarily the regular shape and size, but he just isn't bothered. And it's all down to the way that he was raised and the kind of influence that he had at a young age. So what I'm trying to say is, I think that we need to get in there when children are young. I think that's when the strengthening, the learning is done. So not seven is so, so very important.
0: I think it is interesting you are mentioning the impact made during someone's childhood. I feel like oftentimes we mistakenly think, An eating disorder develops out of the mere desire to be thin, when in reality there is very often underlying, unaddressed trauma, and the desire to be thin is only a symptom of that trauma. What are your thoughts? Is the root of an eating disorder the desire to be thin? Is it deeply rooted trauma, or a combination of both?
1: When somebody comes into treatment into my methods the first thing that I always always look at is the root causes and the reasons because they need to be validated and they need to be recognized and within every single person that suffers from an eating disorder there will always be a different reason. (laughs) The desire to be thin you know Very often, yes, you know, the trauma itself of being overweight is enough to trigger an eating disorder. It was in me. But with a lot of people, it is caused by a myriad of different types of traumatic incidents that people go through. Um, For example, with anorexia, very often people don't want to be seen. They don't want to be here anymore. They want to disappear, therefore they starve. You know, sometimes... Bulimia is self-harm from day one, you know, because people go through extensive traumas, abuse. There's, you know, there's always a different reason and that always needs to be looked at and validated and understood because... Not everybody develops eating disorders. You know, there's so many, so many theories out there of people just wanting to be thin or it's just because of social media and it's just because of people who, who look a certain way. And that's why, you know, people develop eating disorders, which just isn't true. You know, eating disorders, the same as any other di- addictions, are always born from some kind of trauma. It can be within childhood. It can be within teenage years. It could be at any point in anybody's life life. Food is a really intrinsic part of being a human being. And it can be used to control, it can be used to harm, it can be used to comfort. You know, we could do a whole podcast about this this one question in itself, what causes eating disorders. You can't get away from food. Food is something that we all need to stay alive. And every single person gets something different from food, even when they don't have an eating disorder. And like I said, in response to trauma, in response to events that occur in people's lives, food can become a tool. It it can become a tool for comfort, which will develop a disorder. It can become a tool for self-harm, which will develop a disorder. There there are different demographics in society where bodies are expected to look a certain way. Like I said, it, it really is a huge question, but just wanting to be thin is is just not a thing. It's an insult for anybody who's suffered from an eating disorder. They are born from traumatic incidences, and food is something that we cannot give up. And it is very often used in a way to hurt ourselves, to comfort ourselves. So yeah, it's important to understand that everybody's reasons for having disordered eating are very, very different. And, you know, sometimes... People who haven't got an eating disorder sometimes have problems with food, you know. Food is an intrinsic part of human life. It's very attached to emotions. It's something that we do with our families. We, You know, we celebrate, we eat, you know. It's something that we can't get away from. So it is very, very much built into our human experience. And when somebody experiences any kind of problems or any kind of traumas, it's very, very easy for food to be used as a tool within that.
0: Scarlett, it was such a pleasure listening to your story, your incredibly powerful story. If our listeners send questions and if they are demanding, I have you back for a follow-up interview, (laughs) would you be willing to return and speak to me again?
1: Most definitely. There are so many side issues that go, uh, you know, hand in hand with eating disorders Things about body image, things about using filters on the internet, um, male sufferers. There's, there's so many different things to talk about. So, so many and so many different reasons why people have eaten disorders. I always find it really, really hard to fit everything in to, to an hour. I wish that I could speak super fast sometimes so that I could get loads and loads more in (laughs) but most definitely it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you today and I really hope that my honest account somehow can help somebody to not feel ashamed because I just want people to understand that they're not broken and it's not a permanent, flawed part of them. There isn't something intrinsically wrong with you. It's just a mental health condition, it's an an eating disorder, it's an addiction, and you can recover. I did. I never thought I would, and I did and so can other people and that just means a lot to me to get that message out so thank you so so much for having me on i really appreciate it thank you
0: my lovely thought volusionists Scarlett's story really touched me can you imagine finally winning a battle an internal fight that lasted a quarter of a decade 25 years stuck in an eating disorder that almost cost you your life to then finally see a path in your children's eyes that leads you to the road to recovery. And as we hear so very often, that road begins within, and is not only a road to recovery, it is more than anything a road to self-love, acceptance, and true self-worth. Scarlett truly is untouchable, and I hope what she told us resonates with you. Let's end the shame and the stigma that covers mental illness, whether it relates to eating disorders or other mental health issues, so, so, so many of us face. Let's normalize the conversation because, at the end of the day, we are all doing this journey called life together. To learn more about the wonderful Scarlet, whom I would immediately crown the true queen of England, if I had the power to do that, simply because she rocks and she inspires and she is a really amazing fellow human being, please check out her website, ScarletO'Connor.Coach. That is ScarletO'Connor.Coach. And if you have questions for her or would like to become a guest yourself to share your own story with us all, there are multiple ways for you to get in touch with me. Of course, there's our website, thoughtvolutionpodcast.com. That is thoughtvolutionpodcast.com. That's also where you can find our intake form and where you may want to check out the new Love You Ulazis tees and hoodies in our merch store because they are simply awesome and I think you might like them or all of the other merch. You may also call our virtual voicemail number to leave your questions for Scarlett or our other guests. That number is 864-501-5033. That is 864-501-5033. And you can also get in touch with us via Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, or YouTube. Just look for Thoughtvolution. The same goes for those of you wanting to listen via Apple, Spotify, Amazon, etc., etc., or whatever other podcast app you may prefer. Simply look for Thoughtvolution. Now, important as always, please rate, review, comment, subscribe, and do whatever you can to help make Thoughtvolution rule the algorithm. Tell your friends about us, please. Thoughtvolution is a community and we want nothing more than for more people to learn about all of our amazing guests. Fresh stories air every Tuesday. And if you happen to have missed an episode, you can find every single one of them by going to our website, thoughtvolutionpodcast.com, to our YouTube channel or the podcast app of your choice. Thank you for the hour you gave us, for your attention, those open ears, open hearts and open minds. Nothing is more amazing to me than knowing how much we can learn through the lived experiences of our fellow human beings. I don't know about you, but to me, knowing that there are people like my guests around me makes me feel happier, more understood, and so much less alone. We can do this living life thing together, can't we? I love you Lotzis, see you next week, and as always, be kind to each other.